Good morning. So the question's up there on the board, do we really want to be disciples? Do we really want to do this? If I'm answering for all of us, the answer is no. No, we don't want to do this. It's too hard. I don't know if you were paying attention through all 14 verses, but uh, that's a long list of very difficult things. Jesus exhorting his disciples before he sends them out in twos. I know I was thinking the first time I read it, there's no way I could, I mean, even if I wanted to be a disciple. I mean, really, Lord, I don't, I don't think I can do it. A friend of mine in seminary was off to say, he sat in the back of the class, uh, every class, and he would always mutter under his breath whatever assignment came out. He'd say, that's impossible. And so that's the way I felt when I read this. I was like, that's impossible. There's no way we could, we could possibly do that. Listen again to verse 38 and verse 39, the last two verses of this morning's gospel. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Well, we all know the implications of the cross. I mean, it's torture, it's murder, it's death. So, I mean, Jesus saying, be prepared to die. Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think there's actually a bracket after the first time he says life. Whoever finds his life in this world, if you're finding your truth, your purpose, your meaning, your satisfaction in the truths of this world, you're going to lose your eternal life, Jesus is saying. If you find your truth, if you find the truth in Jesus and lose your life in this world for his sake, you will find it for eternity. He's, he's turning the world right side up when he talks like that. You know the world's upside down. I'll get to that in a second. But Jesus, when he speaks like that, is turning the world right side up. But it sounds an awful lot like Jesus is saying, be prepared to die for the cause. Be prepared. Or to put it another way, be prepared to lay your life down for the cause. And I wonder if we've ever really thought about that. Is Jesus really saying to die for the cause? What if somebody, some crazy person broke into church this morning or came into church with a loaded gun and rounded us all up in the center of the room and took us hostages for some ransom money and said to the hostage negotiators outside when they came, to show you that I'm serious, I'm going to kill one of them. And then somebody in this group just stood up quickly and said, take me. I'll die for this group. I don't think after three years of seminary I, I would be that person. I, I would like to believe that maybe I could muster up my strength, but to literally raise my hand at that moment and say, I'll, I'll die for this group. I'll die for the cause. I've got a short movie clip I want to show you that I think drives home this point better than, uh, better than I do. It's a, uh, well, you probably know the movie.
love that line that Clooney's character speaks. It's not up to you. You're going to make it. It's not up to you. You're going to make it. So with my supposition that uh, Jesus may be asking us to die for the cause, I want to do a couple things, and then I want to try to bring us to a place where I think the Lord wants us to be in terms of understanding how it is we could be disciples, because Jesus believes we can be his disciples. In spite of, our, in spite of my um, hesitation, Jesus actually believes we can. So I want to look at the context of Matthew 10 briefly. I want to go through it. I'm going to skip over some verses. I'll read them out loud and make a couple points, and then I want to close uh, with the how-to, okay? So the context of this morning's passage, Matthew 10, uh, comes right on the heels of Matthew chapter 9, right? Uh, good one, Gary. Um, chapter 9, though, is really important. I mean, they're all important in Matthew, but chapter 9 is uh, what I like to call miracle-heavy and very busy. Chapter 9 is miracle-heavy and very busy. Let me just read a list of the things that Jesus and his disciples do in chapter 9 in case you've forgotten a couple of them. Um, he heals a paralytic. He heals two men born blind. He heals a man with a demon. He raises a girl from the dead. He calls Matthew the tax collector to follow him. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. He addresses questions from the Pharisees about his healing power. He addresses John the, baptism's, John the Baptist's disciples about fasting. He encounters the woman with the issue of blood. She touches him. She's healed. And it ends with these famous words of Jesus. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He's talking to his disciples. The rabbi is speaking to his disciples. And he's essentially in chapter 9 showing them and telling them what life as a disciple looks like. Clearly, chapter 9 is Jesus' how-to guide to discipleship. It's as if he's saying, this is what my Father in heaven has sent me to do, and this is how you do it. Make no mistake, though, his words of encouragement and his words of warning are not sugar-coated. He does it, though, in an interesting way. Jesus does a really interesting thing, if you were paying attention. I read it a few times. Actually, I read a commentary uh, to discover this. But what Jesus is doing is he's speaking in the present, and he's speaking about the future. Jesus is carrying on a two-dimensional conversation with his disciples. Why? Because Jesus can do that. He knows the future. Unlike us, we hope for the future. Jesus knows the future. And so he's talking to his disciples in the present. This is what it will look like. And in the future, this is what will happen. And he says, I guarantee it because he's Jesus. And you've heard me say from the pulpit before that if our salvation, if confessing Jesus with our lips and believing it in our heart were the only thing that mattered to God, Romans 10, 9, that as soon as we did that, we'd be taken up into eternity. But clearly, chapter 10 stands against that. There is something we are called to do once we have decided to follow Jesus. John Stott was helpful this week. He's an a Anglican theologian who's passed away. He wrote a book called The Radical Disciple. I'm not going to read the whole book. But he talks about the two words in the New Testament that deal with a relationship with Jesus. There's the word Christian, which... I didn't know, only appears three times in the New Testament. We're only, the people following Jesus are only called Christians three times. But then there's the word disciple, which is used over and over again by the evangelists and author of the New Testament. It's actually on the tapestry behind me. Go and make disciples of all nations. Um, John Stott says that he wishes in some way the word disciple had continued into the following century. So it was a word that was commonly used at the beginning of the church, and Stott wishes it would have followed on so that Christians, those of us here in this room today, were self-consciously disciples of Jesus and took seriously their responsibility to be under discipline. Ooh, 
Nobody likes the discipline word. I went to the Citadel. I really don't like the discipline word. Under discipline. In other words, what Stott is saying is, if we call ourselves disciples and we say, Lord, Lord, then we are turning over the whole of our life to our Lord, the whole of our life, not just the places that we're comfortable giving him, not just those places where we feel gifted, whether it's music or preaching or, no, all of our life to the Lord, every moment of our life to the Lord, if we're going to be disciples. The mysterious and cool part about that is, like we heard today in verses 29, God's providence, God's hand is on all of our lives. So it's not as if he just gives us a little power here and a little power there. He's, he's been here since before time, and he'll be here in the end, Jesus says to the disciples. He says, you have nothing to fear. It's one of the best lines of the scripture today. But God is with us. So let me um, look briefly, excuse me, let me look briefly at the text. We'll just kind of move through this quickly, and then I'll bring us to a place of closure about how could we possibly be disciples. So in verse 24, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Jesus is clearly laying out their hierarchy for us. There's the teacher, and there's the student. There's the rabbi, and there's the student. Uh, People in the military are comfortable with that. There's hierarchy. Verse 25, it's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? It's an important fact here. What happened in the early days to young Jewish boys was they were called by a rabbi. A rabbi would choose a young boy, invite him to come study under him, and then this boy would grow and mature in the ways of that rabbi. The rabbis loved to debate the law. And so if you studied under a rabbi, if we studied under Rabbi John or if we studied under Rabbi Mike, when we got to a certain age, we'd have their interpretation of the law. Do you understand? Everybody had a little different interpretation. They were all essentially saying the same things, but they came at it from different angles, okay? So what Jesus is saying is that the way the teacher goes is the way the students will go. And I'm sure teachers here in this room know what that feels like. If you've got a room full of really bright students, then at the PTA meeting when they point to a student, the other teachers go, oh, that's Mrs. So-and-so's student. But if you've got the less than bright, slower students, then of course you're always getting the, oh, that's her students or that's his students. Well, that's, that's the point Jesus is trying to make here. There's a connection. Then he goes on to say in verse 26, have no fear, nothing that is covered will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. This is a key phrase, and this is Jesus doing what I said he was doing, talking in present terms, talking in future terms. He's saying that what happens, what goes on now, what you say in my name will have an effect on the future. It will have an effect on your future. And you know, that's, that's one of the things that I, I wanted to, I brought it up at the beginning, but I want to just reiterate it. One of the reasons we all feel so frustrated at the end of every week and we can't wait for the weekend is because, like I said before, the world is upside down. And several of you nodded and were like, oh, yeah, Gary, it's upside down. Well, that's that chafing that we feel. The the world is going to be turned right one day. We say it in our creeds. Jesus will come again, and when he does, he's going to take this upside-down world and turn it back up right. And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. You go out into this upside-down world today. Don't worry. Behave as if it was the other way, though confident that I'm coming again. What I tell you in the dark, verse 27, and, what I, and say, what I tell you in the dark, you say in the light, and what you've heard whispered proclaim on the housetops. So here is some of the, the fundamentals of discipleship. In spite of persecution, he says, you still have to proclaim the truth. You still have to be prepared to die for the cause. And don't fear those who can kill the body, verse 28, but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a fate worse than death. 
There is a fate worse than death, and that is to die without a hope of eternity, Jesus is saying. And only God is the one who can grant that eternal salvation. So don't fear man. And then he goes into those three verses about God's providence. Verse 29, about the sparrows. Verse 30, about the number of hairs on our head. And he ends at verse 31. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than the sparrows. Sparrows are important, but you, men and women, created in the image of God, are more valuable to God. One commentary put it this way. The Heavenly Father is just not the guarantor of the fantastic dream, which is the future. But he's also the sovereign Lord of the trying and mundane present. So he's here with us day in and day out. We don't go anywhere that he's not with us. There's that present future again. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, verse 32, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So here's a reference to the truth about the eternal. Here comes the warning, verse 33, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father. And here's the one that gave me the most problem this week. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, I was, I'm still living in the post-Easter resurrection and ascension excitement. So every time Jesus comes into the disciples' presence after the resurrection, what's the first thing he says? Peace, my peace. And everybody calms down. Oh, thank goodness Jesus is here. But before the cross, he didn't come with that message. He came to save sinners. And that message is one that divides people. That message is the one that causes households problems. Not all households. I've got friends who raise their children um, with the truth of Scripture, and it's not so divisive when somebody becomes a Christian in their household. But there are some households who when somebody stands up and says, I've, I've decided to follow Jesus, then their parents might look at them and go, wow, you're turning a little weird, aren't you? I mean, why are you getting so fired up about Jesus? Just go to church on Sundays and that ought to be enough. That's what Jesus is saying, essentially, is there will be households where the truth of what Jesus is saying is going to cause division, and I'm sure some of us know that. Um, verse 35, I have, not, I have come to set a man against his father. This is all that discussion about fathers and mothers and daughter-in-law and daughters, and daughter against mother and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I was reminded of a men's conference at Camp St. Christopher years ago that I went to when I understood this truth, and it's essentially the first command that you shall have no other gods but me. Jesus is just saying, God first. It's that simple. Well, I went to this men's conference with a group from St. Paul's, and there was 100 of us down there or so, 200 men maybe. We broke into small groups, and somebody, in the, the group leader asked in our group, uh, what's the most important thing in your life? Well, a good friend of mine sitting next to me said, oh, my children. And before I could control myself, I went, well, it's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be God. He, he stood up out of his chair. I thought he was going to punch me. He was like, what do you mean? Not my, I was like, well, the message was right. I could have said it a little differently. I should have said it. I should have said it a little differently. Um, we, sh we shouldn't have anything between us and the Lord. Children are important. They're gifts, no doubt about it. But um, Jesus is clear. If there's anything in your life that's more important or takes the place of me, move it. Move it. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, like I've said several times, nothing should come between us and Jesus. A year ago, right before my mother died, she was a month away from dying, I spent a week, it was our reading week, and she was in a little bit of a morphine haze at the time, so she was about 80% lucid. She would, we could still play cards, she could still comment about the bears and, and things, but there was 20% there was where she wasn't there. Well, anyway, the week ended, it was a long week, anybody that's taking care of someone now knows what it's like 24 hours a day. 
Um, so there I was at the end of the week, and I was, I was sad to be leaving, but I got to confess, I was ready to go, you know, but I thought, well, this is going to be hard, and um, I leaned over to kiss my mom goodbye and held both of her hands, and she looked at me through the morphine haze with her beautiful blue eyes and said, I said, Mom, I, I got to go. I got to go back to Pittsburgh. I can't stay. And she said, the week's over? I said, yeah. It, I know it flew by for you, Mom, but boy, I was, I was counting the hours. Um, she said, well, you go back. That you're, that's, what you're, that's where you're supposed to go. I'll, I'll be okay, she said. I'll be okay. So that was a mother, I believe, who really had her priority straight. She loves her sons, Todd and I, but she loved the Lord more. She loved the Lord more. Um, and now we come to the conclusion of these verses, the, the hard ones that I brought up at the beginning of the sermon. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life in this world will lose it. And whoever loses his life in this world for my sake will find it. Um, the cross, the cross, the cross. For Matthew, for the, for the evangelist Matthew, the cross is the ultimate symbol of self-denial. Jesus' willingness to go to the cross for us. Jesus, the one who would stand up in this congregation first and say, take me. Jesus, the George Clooney character who lets go and says, no, it's not up to you. You're going to be all right. That's what the cross means to uh, Matthew. One last thing before I close. Verse 39 is in all four Gospels. I'm a seminarian or graduate. I should have known that just by looking at it. I, I know there are some things that all four evangelists share, but I did not know this verse, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It is in some shape or form almost verbatim in all four Gospels. So that tells us this is really important. All four of the writers wanted to make sure that people 2014 years later knew about this. What they're trying to remind us, folks, is that daily we need to lay down our life in imitation of Jesus as a sign of surrender and a sign of willingness to the eternal call. We're here in the present, but we believe in an eternity. Which brings us back to the beginning of the sermon, where I said, I will get to, at the end, the how-to part. I always, I want application. I can't help it. I, I love to hear, I love to study the Bible, and I love to discuss the Bible, but I really want the Bible to, I want to be able to walk out and take something with me. So I hope uh, you can take this with you. Like I've mentioned before, I will probably almost, for at least for the first couple of years, try to quote a former Archbishop of Canterbury in every one of my sermons. I know that'll probably dwindle after a while, but I'm still on fire with the seminary, you know, so, oh, let me tell you about what an Archbishop said 100 years ago. You guys are like, yawn. Um, th this is beautiful. William Temple, uh, an Archbishop, wrote just beautifully. I would give anything just to be able to write a sentence like he wrote. But this is William Temple explaining to us today how we can be disciples, okay? This is what Temple says. It's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me, write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it, but I can't. It's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and saying, live a life like that. Jesus could do it, but I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then... I could write plays like that. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like that. That's the grace. That's the promise. Jesus says, I'll send you my spirit. It will be inside of you. It won't be you anymore. It'll be me in you. That's how we can be disciples. We receive that grace. So let me close with a prayer. I'm going to embarrass someone who doesn't know it's coming. Let me close with a prayer that um, my wife calligraphied. It's hanging on the wall by the front door of our house, and I really hope that people who come and go see it. I've got a big cross over it. Maybe they'll notice. It's been there for about 15 years, 
Um, it's a prayer that was spoken by a very popular uh, evangelical uh, preacher back in about 2000 or 2001. He uh, rose to fame very quickly. Um, one, of our, one of the people sitting here in the congregation, Elizabeth Harmon, uh, actually turned me on to him. His name is Rob Bell. And she gave me these CDs. And the first one I watched this prayer came from, and I just I fell in love with it. Years later, I called her husband and, and said, Rob Bell, is that still cool or uncool? I mean, where are we on this? And he's like, no, Rob Bell's still cool. So I think I've got permission by one of my mentors to read you this prayer. It's beautiful. Um, listen to these words. Listen to these words, this prayer. Actually, close your eyes. Close your eyes now, everybody, and imagine that these words are being prayed over each of us who want to be disciples this morning. Everybody that wants to be a disciple this morning, imagine that these are the words that uh, our rabbi would be praying over us, okay? May you believe in God, but may you come to see that God believes in you. May you have faith in Jesus, but May you come to see that Jesus has faith that you can be like him, a disciple. A disciple of love and compassion and truth. A disciple of forgiveness and peace and grace and joy and hope. And hear this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, Jesus. Amen.